0: Hello, left fielders! Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go.
1: The way that I see it as a passive investor, I trade control for diversification. If I'm an active investor, I can go and refinance a property anytime, hire an fire a manager, sell the property make a decision about how much I want to spend on a toilet, whatever it is, right? Instead of investing $500,000 to buy that apartment building and have full control over it, I might put $50,000 across 10 apartment buildings but have no control. But I'm a lot more diversified and I try to get diversified across asset classes, geographies, and operators. I also get other things as a result of diversification I get to leverage other people's time, expertise, and credit.
0: That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors?
2: Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at $25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim. We are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Leftfield and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest.
3: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Leftfield podcast powered by TribeFest. The mission of Leftfield Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community.
0: Today, we have Jeremy Roll from Roll Investments. He started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left his corporate job to be a full-time passive investor in 2007. He is an investor in over 60 deals across more than a billion dollars of real estate and business assets. Jeremy is the co-founder of For Investors, by Investors, a community started in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and education for real estate investors. Jeremy, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
1: Thanks, Jim. I really appreciate you having me here. And I just want to say that Jim didn't pay me to say this, but I really appreciate the fact that Jim is trying to create left field investors and, and build it without really much of a profit motive to try and help investors unite, you know, and you out meet each other, learn from each other and create a community, which very few people really have done, especially with a nonprofit mindset. So I just want to thank you, Jim, for the time and effort you're putting into that as well.
0: Oh, great. Well, I, I really appreciate hearing that. And, you know, we also appreciate the friend you've been to our group, be, coming to our meeting and doing this podcast. So I think it's a great partnership and and we are trying to build a community and we're glad to have you part of it you can just kind of talk a little bit about your journey, kind of how you got into real estate, how you got into passive investing and just what your path was.
1: Sure. So, taking all the way step back, um so I was investing in the stock market and bonds is like a lot of people in the corporate world and I was in the corporate world back in the early 2000s. The dot com crash happened and that's what really my my changing moment was. It basically, once the dot com crash happened back in 2001, I was just sick and tired of the stock market for two reasons. One is a little more obvious than the other. One was the volatility, right? So the fact that the market was going up and down 30% a year, I'm just a really low risk, slow and steady guy. It was just a completely wrong fit for me. But even more importantly, was a lack of predictability in my retirement account in the long term. I'm talking 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I'm looking at all this volatility saying to myself, how do I know where this is all going to be in that long term? This is not the right fit for me as far as like trying to find some more predictability. So I looked at different ways to invest and came across the concept of cash flow and more predictability with cash flow, and ended up honing in on what I call kind of the lower risk spectrum of cash flow, where you have more predictability because you have high occupancy rates in real estate, for example, and you have a lot of track record this year in the right location with the right type of product and everything else. So I started investing in passive opportunities and syndications where they pull investors together, and I'm very passive. In 2002, I rotated all my savings actually at the time from stock stocks to bonds between 02 and 07. And then I had a last term moment in the corporate world with one of my managers, and I ended up leaving the corporate world in 07 because I know the cash flow built up to live off of at the time. So I've been a passive cash flow investor. We're recording this now in March of 2021. So I've been a passive cash flow investor for, actually, it's been, uh, it was started in January, February of 02. So I guess that's 19 years. And I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor for almost 14 years now, since 2007. So you, you made the
0: change because you wanted more predictability for retirement. Can you talk a little bit about once you get to retirement, Are there is there going to be much change to your financial picture? Because most people, when they retire, they don't have their W-2 and now they're using their retirement savings. Well, you're kind of already using that bucket of money. So what does retirement look like?
1: Great question. There's a couple different angles on this. So the first thing is I network with a ton of investors because as a full-time investor, I'm literally just networking to find opportunities, whether it's investors, other investor groups or operators, et cetera. So I have a lot of conversations about this with people and I've seen some people that are older than me. I'm in my upper forties at the moment who are older, who have either self-directed retirement accounts that at the age where they have to start forced contributions or just the concept they're getting older. On the one hand, having the cash flow is fantastic, right? Especially if you have a very diversified base of cash flow and you're, let's say, at two or three X your cost of living, right? Which is a great place to be or more. On the other hand, the lack of liquidity can cause some challenges. For example, in a self directed retirement account, if you have all this cash flow coming through, but now all of a sudden you're starting to have to pay forced, you're starting to have to take forced distributions that don't necessarily align with you selling properties, you've got a problem, right? Or you, you could have a problem. So as you get older, there's a lot to consider, I think, in this type of investing. And by the way, I should have mentioned up front, I'm not a financial advisor, investment advisor, accountant, or attorney. So anything I'm sharing here is just my perspective as an investor is not like financial or investment advice. <laughs> right, absolutely. Right. But but from where I stand, I'm gonna have to reevaluate as I get older and older the fact that I am pretty much all in on a lack of liquidity, which uh, it's funny because in many ways it's it's in the way that I've set myself up, it's been very beneficial. But the lack of liquidity prevents challenges here and there. It's not that bad, but it does come up once in a while. But more importantly, I think as I get much, much older, that lack of liquidity is something I'm going to have to reevaluate. And will it make sense for me to start rotating into some liquidity and then have a balance between the two, remove some of the cash flow and maybe go into more, for example, dividend stocks. I I hate to say bonds because the yields are just ludicrously low, but maybe it's going to be dividend stocks or basket of dividend stocks that won't quite do as well as the cash flow but it'll be a good balance because it'll be liquid, right? So that's how I see myself potentially evolving as I get older. We can have a whole other conversation about where is the market going to be in 10 or 20 years and what do I think I'm going to have to do to keep up based on all the money printing and everything else. Because I think that's going to have to shift the way that I invest too, but that has nothing to do with liquidity more like some eventual shifts that I think are going to be needed.
0: Right, and I think liquidity is one of the, that's one of the one downsides I think of passive investing is I can't think of an investment that's less liquid Right if you own your own property you can always sell it but if you're in a syndication you're kind of stuck. So right now what are you doing with cash while you're waiting to invest cuz I know you had said and maybe you can talk about this too. You've said you're mostly on the sidelines regarding new investments. So what are you doing with the cash and wh- where are you putting it?
1: Yeah. And I should have added one more thing to my previous remark and then I'll definitely address that which is I think that in five to 10 years from now, the, the investing landscape for us in real estate on the passive side is going to be completely different. And what I mean by that is that the liquidity is going to be much more available because I'm a firm believer that there's going to be a number of stock exchanges pop up. They're called ATSs, alternative trading systems, that some crowdfunding websites are starting to get approved for. StartEngine.com is the first that's really large scale on the startup side. Eventually, maybe they'll have real estate deals as well, but you can you can actually approach them as a company to trade on their platform with your shares. Now, I'm not, not an individual investor, but the company can get listed. So I think that's going to be a big thing that's going to come up in the next 5-10 years. They're going to make our possibilities much more liquid. So that's just a thing to note because I'm going to be monitoring that very carefully because that'll have a big potential positive impact on, on my portfolio just in terms of liquidity. So anyway, that's just a side note. As far as what I've been doing today, so I'm very, very low risk. I, I'm known for that. And that's that's just the reality of how my personality is. So I'm mostly on the sidelines right now. We're in March of 2021. I'm waiting for President Biden just signed, I think, yesterday, the new $1.9 trillion stimulus. I'm waiting to see what happens once government interventions mostly taper off eviction moratoriums, foreclosure moratoriums, rent subsidies, and all these other things to wear off to see if there's going to be an impact before this new cycle starts. So I feel like as an investor, a cycle has ended last year, but it hasn't started yet because the government has delayed the entire process and the potential adjustment from all the stimulus. Once the stimulus wears off, we have to see, did they manage to bridge the entire gap and all that? And is there going to be no effect on assets and rents and everything else? and vacancies, or are we gonna have some type of effect? Will there be some type of adjustment we would normally have at the end of a cycle? So what I'm doing right now is I'm waiting because I'm concerned about asset prices going coming down or cap rates going up or NOIs going down, frankly, all the above. And so I am trying to do two things. I'm trying to find opportunities where I'm not, I don't have to worry about the value of assets depreciating, which I'll give you a quick example. I just invested another tranche in an ATM fund. I've been investing in ATM machines since 2008. And I just invested another tranche of an ATM fund where I know those ATM machines are going to depreciate to about 5% residual, 95% done. So if you tell me that an ATM is worth less next year than it would have been otherwise, the machine, I could care less. What I care about is the predictability and the consistency of the cash flow stream associated with it in which where those businesses are actually where those ATMs are located within retail, right? And so when I look at the landscape right now, the timing is really interesting because I waited all of last year to invest another tranche, waiting for a vaccine to be uh, approved, created, approved, and then start to be widespread available. Because to me, that was probably the beginning and the end of the retail massacre that we've seen. Right? So retail is now in a position where it's most, from a probability perspective, going to start to do better over time. Right? And that means wherever these ATMs are, they aren't—they don't have the same amount of risk that they had a year ago. For example, so I was waiting to do another tranche, but now the timing is really good for that but it's uncertain for a lot of other things, right? So that's one example where I don't have to worry about the asset value depreciating next year. I have to worry about the cash flow stream continuing. I've been through the last recession, 2008, as well as this pandemic, I understand how ATMs react. I'm not that concerned about a change in revenue. And as a result, that's an interesting investment for me today. The other side of the coin, so that's an example of something that isn't going to depreciate that I have to worry about the asset value depreciating and this being the wrong timing to go into it, you know, compared to a year or two from now. The other side of it is, Stuff that's shorter term, because this $1.9 trillion stimulus is probably going to create a position from an economic standpoint that we're going to be in a good position for the next three to six to nine months as far as consumer spending, right? So I think that it's helping to create a 2021 scenario. There's going to be a decent amount of spending. And therefore, I think I have six to 12 months of short-term investing where the glue is going to keep together, right? My question mark is what happens maybe this fall and going forward if the government stops to provide more stimulus, which I think is the most probable scenario, at least I think it's going to taper quite drastically. So I'm looking at shorter term stuff. So it could be hard money lending on flips for very short term, where right now the supply of homes is very, very tight. So the housing market's a really good supply demand scenario that I can actually feed into on the lending side. And then I'm also looking at anything that has a very quick payback period so that I'm reducing risk in, in the next 12 months in case things change. And so that's not necessarily real estate, or it could be a note that's structured a certain way. But the ATM example I gave you, I'm just using this because it's a live example, and it's easy for everybody to understand. There's a 25% projected cash-on-cash annualized return. And then you also get 100% depreciation in year one. And assuming that the laws don't change for depreciation this year, because there has been talk about tax change, but assuming they don't change for a minute here, I'm probably going to end up with the equivalent, including depreciation benefit, of maybe 40% plus of my capital back in the first year. Right, assuming I can use all the depreciation benefits and it might be over 50. So that to me takes a lot of the risk off the table during a time in which I think we're in the clear going into a time of uncertainty. So that's attractive to me, right? These things are interesting to discuss in theory, but finding them is very difficult because those things I'm talking about, they're not widely available and it's not what I normally invest in. What I normally do is a longer term, more stabilized property with a 10 year loan or just predictable cash flow. This is the exact opposite. So I'm having to definitely pivot. And kind of fit things into, you know, a a round peg into a square hole to make it work in the short term. Because keeping cash, as you know, is a really, really bad idea for investors.
0: And on that note, what would you do if you were, because in in our community, we have accredited and non-accredited. And we have new people and we have people that have been doing it for a long time. So if we're talking to someone who isn't accredited, so maybe they can't get into the ATM deal. Or, you know, they're talking about this is their first or second deal. They have some money. They don't want to wait 12 or 18 months for things to change. Is there anything that you would recommend they could invest in or would you just strongly recommend they wait?
1: You're talking about non-accredited investors specifically or in general?
0: In general. Just you know, you're comfortable waiting or finding these niche investments. What about somebody new who's just starting out and they don't want to wait 12 months to put their money to work. They want to want to get into something. What would you recommend for someone like that?
1: Yeah, great question. So, let's say somebody just has to put their money to work today and they're fairly new. There's two things I'd recommend. Number one is make sure you're really highly diversified because there is still risk ahead. And so I would recommend putting smaller pieces across more things as a general concept and even more so right now. So let's say you do want to put some money to work. Maybe you don't put all the money to work that you're thinking you want to put to work. I I'd caution you to kind of keep the amount lower if you could. The next thing I would do is I would look at either shorter term stuff like, can you get exposure to hard money flipping? where you're hard harmony lending, where you're not having to provide the entire loan for a fraction of a loan. And there's all types of legal challenges and other things associated with that when you're partners, with other people, et cetera. But that's one thing coming to mind is you may be able to find portions of loans to be able to invest in that are shorter term. Another option is if you're looking at a long-term investment, a lot of people take the uh, position that I don't care if the value of this apartment building is going to go down in the next one or two years, because I'm looking at it as a 10-year deal. I'm not going out. So I'm totally comfortable with the value of the building going down in the next one to two years, because I think in 10 years it's going to be worth more. And as long as it gets back to where it was or worth more in the end, and I've gotten a reasonable cash flow, I'm completely comfortable with it. So if you have asset classes like that, that you have a lot of confidence in, that you're not worried being locked into, and that you think it's better to have your money locked into those and it's not going to bother you, they may go down in value in the short term then that's actually a pretty reasonable thesis. And a lot of people use that thesis for apartments, and that's why I use this as an example, right? And so you may want to hone in on the asset classes you're most comfortable with from a longer-term perspective and take a really long-term approach. Make sure there's a 10-year fixed-rate loan so you're not having to worry about any volatility in the short term. And if you can find those types of assets that will provide cash flow, even if things go let down, the cash flow goes down a little bit, but don't have that much risk in your opinion, then I think that's a very good thesis. I tend to be just ultra-conservative, so I'm not comfortable with that. But I know a lot of investors who are comfortable. And frankly, I think those investors are going to do better than me in the long term because their money is going to be deployed. you know, a higher percentages will be deployed more of the time. So um, it's not necessarily a bad strategy. And keep in mind, for everyone listening, there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are necessarily wrong. I've never invested in a ground-up development in 19 years. Some people have only invested in ground-up developments and probably done better than me. Uh, this is just one perspective and make sure that whatever you're doing, no matter what it is, that you're 100% comfortable with it. And then it's your own strategy that makes the most sense for you.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the perspectives that I really appreciate that you have is you're, you're admittedly conservative, but you understand that other people aren't. And a lot of people, when they, when they get to a place where there's a lot of people asking for their time or their, their input, they say, it's my way or, or you know nothing. And I like that you're able to look from both viewpoints. Switching a little bit, and we're still talking about asset classes, I know that self-storage and mobile homes are very popular right now. Can you give us your opinion of those assets generally, and then and specifically right now, but also generally
1: after we're through this? Let me give you my 10-year my outlook on them first, because that's easier. It, those two asset classes are my top four asset classes for the next 10 years for my own investing based on the fact that I look for more predictable, lower-risk cash flow. I think those are going to fit into my picture. In what I call my tier A targets for the next 10 years. I'll explain why. So, for mobile home parks, that historically, if you look, like I, I believe the last time I looked at the data, the average mobile home park in the US that they've surveyed has about a 9% turnover each year. I'm talking about a more stabilized park and mostly park owned, uh, sorry, owner occupied homes. So, in that type of profile, it's got the lowest turnover rate of any major asset class that I'm aware of. So, that means that. If you're looking for predictable cash flow, it should be number one on your list, or so to speak, at at least the criteria meets the number one on the list based on the lack of turnover. And that's one of the reasons why I love that asset class, along with the fact that I believe there's going to be a very strong continued need and demand for low-income housing. And so as people also may want to work from home, that provides them with more space, in some cases a yard, et cetera. Some of these communities are really fantastic. And so that's one angle on on, uh, mobile home parks. And I love that asset class. By the way, this is my 10-year outlook, not necessarily for today. I'm going to get to that in a minute because that's a different outlook. So self-storage, I'm a very big fan specifically of self-storage over the next 10 years in areas that are going to have population migration from people retiring specifically and having to, let's say, downsize. Move states in some cases and have some stuff they're going to bring with them, they're just going to have in storage, right? So, I think that either way, that population migration is going to impact storage no matter what because population is increasing. So, when you look at Florida and Texas for the top two states that have projected population migration, those are great examples of places where I think self storage is going to do particularly well. The other thing that's really interesting about self storage is that if it's really well managed and you optimize pricing, you can get outsized annualized increases in the right markets. Because you know, a hundred dollar storage unit, right? If you increase it five or ten dollars, that's five or ten percent in a year, whereas an apartment building might go up three percent. So you can get outsized returns, similar kind of thesis in mobile home parks in some cases, because the absolute dollars are smaller. So it could be interesting as well. I will just caution you though that well, mobile home parks can be a little tricky to manage, especially ones with a lot of rental homes, which I, I don't ever invest in myself. It's a whole different profile. Self-storage, if you really want to optimize it, you really have to have an operator that knows what they're doing. Some of them will say, if I have three 10 by 20s left and one 10 by 10, they may literally charge you, have the pricing less than on the big one than the smaller one, because there's only one small one left and they want to get rid of the three big ones. And that's what I call dynamic pricing. And the only, the more sophisticated ones are down to that level, but that's how you optimize pricing, right? And in self-storage, they'll tell you that if you ever have a 100% occupied self-storage, you're doing something wrong. You're not optimizing the pricing. You actually don't want to target a facility that is 98% occupied because it's actually not being optimized. So and I'm using a generalization, but that's a very common knowledge. So you have to make sure if you're targeting self-storage, you've got a really strong operator. Now, going to the current outlook, I think that anything right now, I'm on the sidelines on. I'm worried about cap rates potentially shifting. Mobile home parks specifically, well, I love them. They have actually gone, they've had the biggest cap rate compression of any asset class, I'm quite sure, this entire run-up. So, you know, uh, parks that I was investing in in 2010 were 10 to 13 caps, three-star parks, and they're now commonly five caps, okay? So but the problem with that today is not only is the casual flow not what it used to be, but more importantly, I'm a big believer that, you know, if, it's, if the pendulum is swung one way, it can actually swing further back because it's so extremely swung one way. So I think that mobile home parks have the highest degree of potential exposure in an adjustment in cap rate, just mathematically, right, like theoretically. And self-storage is also a pretty major compression as well. So the timing at this very moment is very challenging for me, and I'm not considering any market rate deals across any asset classes. And I'm waiting to see what happens, as I mentioned before, once the government stimulus is done. So I'd be very careful with any asset class, including those that we discussed right now. But I do think for the next 10 years, those are amongst my favorite asset classes. Okay.
0: With mobile homes and self-storage, it seems like there's more fund approaches than single asset approaches. Do you have a thought on which you prefer if you'd rather invest in the single asset or you're okay investing in a fund if you were to invest in these?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, actually, I would actually argue that I'm not sure if it's a phenomenon of those particular asset classes versus an end of cycle phenomenon. Typically, what you see in a cycle is that you've got the least amount of money chasing deals right after a downturn when people are scared and there's less money and liquidity out there. And you have the most amount of money chasing deals at the end of a cycle, which we're still kind of at the end of a cycle because it hasn't reset yet, right? And so what's happened over the last few years is that as it's been easier and easier to raise money for these sponsors because we're at the end of a cycle or towards the end of a cycle, it's much more efficient for them to raise money in one fund versus multiple entities for multiple properties. So that's what I think you're seeing as a phenomenon, just as a side note. And I think that once we switch back, uh, once the if the cycle resets and has a meaningful reset, I think you're going to see that there's going to be less funds and more individual properties again because the sponsors won't have much choice. They'll actually have to make it more attractive for investors. What what I mean by attractive is that technically most investors and who I've talked to, including myself, prefer to be able to analyze one property at a time. Can't get as comfortable going into a fund with an operator unless I've invested with them a few times and are convinced that what they're going to acquire into that fund and what they would call a blind pool or semi-blind pool, which I'll explain in a minute they really have a firm belief that that operator is going to acquire the right things because when you go into a completely blind pool and find you, when a fund just starts, you actually have no assets in there, you're 100% making a bet on the fact that the properties that will be acquired you are going to agree with, the, the actual profile of them, the purchase price, etc. If you want, you can often wait, and I do this a lot, to see what's been acquired and maybe try to get it right at the end. You'll, you won't get the benefit of having accumulated the preferred return of the cash flow from the start, but you'll reduce some of the risk and make sure it's the right alignment for you. But once you've invested with an operator for years, I mean, there's a lot of operators I've invested with like 10, 20 times where I know, in fact, I invested with one operator in seven funds because every time I knew they were going to acquire stuff that I would 100% or very close, 100% agree with, right? But I think it does take some time to get comfortable with an operator. So for me, I'll always take the individual property if I can analyze it, with the exception of operators I've invested with many times who have a very high degree of confidence that we are aligned in what, you know, stuff that I would be looking to acquire is what they're acquiring.
0: And and that goes back to one of the philosophies that we have in our in our community is you get comfortable with the sponsor first and foremost, and then you move on to market and deal. So it seems like if you're comfortable with a the sponsor, then perhaps you would you'd be more comfortable with the fund approach.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I couldn't agree with you more, by the way, on the concept of I always say that who you're making a bet on, the operator is the number one thing and the property is number two. And and let me be clear, the property is a very close number two as far as priority. But I truly believe the operator is the number one thing to focus on, and I could not stress that more to anyone who's starting out or even who's invested before. And interestingly enough, I have about ten startup investments. They're very, very rare for me, but it's the same thing. What I learned in startup—the hard way—you know—I learned the hard way with those investments. I originally was like finding interesting ideas a decade or two ago. I take a flyer fly on them, not knowing the team very well. A lot of those went to zero, and as soon as I switched completely to only making a bet on people I knew really well who've been successful. And I literally could not resist making a bet on somebody. And I kind of like the startup idea well enough. It just switched 180. And so that's a perfect example of how important the operator is. And it translates to harder assets and lower risk stuff in a bit of a less extreme way. But I think it's still absolutely critical. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
0: Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing?
2: I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy and it helps you take the most important step. The first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives.
0: Changing gears just a little bit again, and maybe this has to do with the, the where we are in the market. Many sponsors seem to be adding different class shares on their offerings. They have an A class that doesn't get any of the upside, but has a higher pref, and then maybe a B class. And then there's even some preferred equity that has been coming into some of these deals. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what you think about those developments?
1: Yeah, well, let's split that in two parts. I think that the first part you mentioned, which is two classes of shares, for example, that's a very common thing that's happened for a lot. It's been going on for decades. And what that is essentially is trying to incentivize someone to either invest earlier on into a fund. So if the first five million dollars goes into a fund to incentivize you to finally move forward because you're taking more risk because of that blind pool aspect we talked about, you're gonna get you're gonna get maybe a higher preferred return, a better split. So you're gonna get rewarded for coming in early and taking a risk, right? Whereas the later capital will get, you know, slightly worse terms. That, that's something that's been common. What's a little bit what's actually new to this cycle, or this past cycle, was this advent of preferred return coming up much more more frequently. And I think, in my opinion, that has come up as a result of the cap rates getting to the point where cash flow has become unattractive at certain cap rates. Like if you're going to buy a building at a four cap and you're going to get 6% or 5% cash flow year one as a passive investor, that's not very attractive. And what happened is that as an end of cycle phenomenon, we start to see more and more people offer the preferred equity as a solution to how do I continue to attract investors in an environment where these deals just aren't attractive enough to get all these investors? And so the solution was preferred equity where it's a fixed return and you're projected to get cash flow at a higher fixed return, but there's no upside whatsoever. And you're in a preferred part of the capital stack where you're actually ahead of getting paid of the regular equity investor. That's the preferred equity. To me, that's financial engineering. That's literally saying, how do I make this deal more attractive When my multiple that I'm paying is so high that it's otherwise unattractive to investors, which tells you something, right? It tells you something about where we are with cap rates, where we are at the end of a cycle, right? That's a very important point. The one thing about preferred equity that I think it's really critical if you're investing in a deal that has preferred equity, whether you're the actual preferred equity or the common equity, you need to understand the ins and outs of how much preferred equity is being raised, what are the terms, how much common equity is being raised, what are the terms, and what does that mean to me? And I think that both a lot of people who are investing in preferred equity, I don't think they fully understand the concept and exactly how they should look at it. Because I've had conversations with many people about this, and a lot of them who already invested in deals didn't fully understand it. And I think a lot of people who invested in common equity even didn't really fully understand the preferred equity structure and the, the additional risk that took place as a result of having that structure in terms of having more more equity behind them or ahead of them, I should say. So I think this is a really important topic. Doesn't this get discussed enough? I think a lot of investors don't understand that the whole thing's about financial engineering at an end of a cycle to begin with. And I think the investors really need to understand the ins and outs of that particular deal, what percentage, like you got to look at the loan to value, how much preferred equity there is, how much common equity there is. If you're going to look at preferred equity, you've got to assess your risk reward of whatever the interest rate's going to be. Are you going to get it in the back end as a kicker? How much of a loan is ahead of you? And, what does that look like? And if you're in common equity behind the preferred equity, how does that increase your risk? And are you going to get rewarded for that or not, right? And so there's some scenarios that make sense and some that really don't. And um, it's just really, really important to understand the entire capital stack if you're investing in part of it.
0: Right. And, and that's the next question I want to ask you is because the private placement memorandum, the PPM, that's where you can find a lot of this stuff about preferred equity or asset classes. And and they'll, they'll explain that in the, in the overall... Executive summary of the deal, but to really figure out how it works, you got to dig into the PPM, and those are really difficult for the average investor to get through if you're not an attorney. So, what is the most important thing to look for in a PPM in your in your view?
1: There's a lot of things, but what I'll say is this: often, when you're looking at a PPM, it has the operating agreement built into it. So, let me answer the most important thing, or at least one of the top things in a PPM. One of the top things in an operating agreement, right? So, one of the top things in a PPM. Are the risks, right? You're going to want to read all the risks. Really, the main reasons to have the PPM are for risk disclosure, fee disclosure, and all that. So you're going to want to read through all that and understand a deal really, really well. A lot of the risks are very boilerplate, but sometimes you'll read a risk you didn't even think about, and it's important for you to know it's there. And frankly, you should know it's there before you sign on the dotted line and sending your funds, which is why it's disclosed. And actually, in the PPM, you might even find information sometimes about the sponsor, like if, they, if they're under an ongoing investigation by a state or the SEC, it has to be disclosed in there. You may not be aware of it. If you don't read the PPM, you're investing with someone under an investigation right now. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it would have been your fault. You didn't know that because it was actually handed to you on a paper that it was there. Right. And I think the most important thing to understand about an operating agreement is that if you're not familiar with them, is that the operating agreement dictates the rules that investors and the sponsor have to abide by within the LLC. It's literally the rules of the LLC. And so do you want to know the rules of what you're getting into or not from a legal perspective? What is absolutely required? How does it work? If you don't want to know the rules of the game you're about to play and you're, you're comfortable handing in your fifty, dollars $100,000 to somebody without even knowing the rules, then go ahead. But I don't think that's smart, right? So you're going to want to know the rules. You're going to want to know what the sponsor is allowed to do and not allowed to do. You're, you're going to want to know what investors are allowed to do and not allowed to do. For example, what happens if there's a capital call? What rules do you have? To, would they have to follow and what you have to follow? What happens with reporting? Do they really? Are they really required to give you reporting if something goes wrong or is it not actually even required even though they say they're going to give you a quarterly report? How about distributions? Is there a requirement for them to give you distributions at a certain time, within a certain time? How about tax reporting? Are they required to give you tax reporting by a certain deadline? And I can go on and on and on, right? All the rules are in there. Now, the interesting thing is that The operating agreement is created by the attorney that is hired by the sponsor. They don't represent the investor. They represent the sponsor. They represent the best interest of the sponsor. Okay. And it's up to the attorney and the sponsor to decide how much of a balanced approach they want to take for investors. Some of them will take a balanced approach. Some of them won't. You have to read those documents and see, am I getting into rules that take a balanced approach or not? Because a lot of attorneys don't take a balanced approach and look to protect the sponsor. And that's actually at your detriment as an investor. So it's critical to read the operating agreement and understand what you're getting into from a rule perspective. I have seen crazy things in operating agreements before that have made me put a deal in the garbage immediately, which we can get into if you want. But if you don't read the rules, then again, just like you didn't read the risk disclosure and didn't know that they were under investigations, you didn't read the rules. You didn't know that there was a capital call. You had to give your capital within 48 hours. By the way, at any time or day, you have to provide it within 48 hours. You lost half of your equity. I've actually seen that once. That sounds nuts, but it was in there. It was a rule, and if you signed it without reading it, you just signed a contract you didn't read, right? So that's how critical it is to read all that stuff. I just can't stress it enough.
0: Yeah, and I think you know a lot of us probably don't do as good a job at that as, as we should. But when you're putting in fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars into an investment, especially with someone that you you might not know as well as as you know, maybe you've met a couple times or had a few phone calls with, it makes sense to read through that and recently, we had a post in the in the forums of left field investors about background checks for sponsors, which I, I understand is something that you do. Can you talk about why you do that? And has it ever changed
1: your investment decision? It's definitely changed my investment decision. And I do it for two reasons. One isn't as obvious as the other, but is actually probably equally as important or might be almost equally as important. So I've been doing background checks as a rule for uh, as far as I can remember. And when I first started, the way I had to do them was through a private investigator. That's who I had to hire to really get all the information. And those people are still out there if you'd like to hire one. I eventually got access to really very robust databases. The two that I've used in the past are Accurate, which is owned by Alexis Nexus, and TLO, which was merged eventually and now is owned by TransUnion. They provide information about criminal and civil type of judgments. They provide information about liens, tax liens, judgments, other items any lawsuit people, but even if they haven't, even if they have won or lost it, it provides all the history, all the court history. And it also shows what property that person owns, what corporate entities they're affiliated with. And I should actually dig down into those. That's just the initial report. You can actually dig down into each one. And so it's absolutely critical because I'll give you a great example. I once ran a check on somebody, I didn't know it all, and I was going to invest with. And what I found was that this person was in first state X, I don't remember which one it was, they get sued by like 30 people. And then all of a sudden, two years later, they're in state Y and they get sued by another 20 people. And now they're in the third state and I'm talking to them. What's going on? Someone seems to be defrauding people, probably, or something else similar. Now, here's the thing. You can't assume they're guilty. Maybe all those people would have lost their case. But they definitely, they've upset 50 people. So do you want to take the risk or you want to move on to the next deal? Because there's a thousand deals out there. You move on to the next deal. I probably save myself from losing potentially all my money, right? Now, these background checks don't cost that much relative to the amount you're going to invest. So the risk reward is absolutely no brainer to me. And unfortunately, I would say in my experience that it's probably unlikely that even one out of 10 people run background checks. It's crazy for me to say, but that's my experience. Now, the other thing, the other reason why I run it, and I think it's very important is to actually test. The sponsor. And what I mean by that is when you're trying to figure out who you're investing with and who to make a bet on, you've got to read between the lines in as many ways as you can to really kind of figure out who are you making a bet on really here. So, what I do is I will turn to the sponsor and say, I want to run back on checks on all the managing members. Um, What I need from everybody is their name, date of birth, and home address. So, that's test number one. Will you give me your home address? I actually don't even need it. I can take a work address, but I asked for the home address, right? So, that's test number one. Number two is, I always ask them, is there anything I should know before I run the background checks? And that is a very important statement because I'll give you an example. An investor called me probably six months ago who I know and said, hey, I just ran a background check on somebody. I asked them that question. They said nothing to know here. And a bankruptcy came up from 2007, right? And here's what's interesting. Most people would assume after seven years a bankruptcy is wiped off a credit report. Well, it probably is, but it's not wiped off a background check. It's there permanently. So the question that they had for me is, well, did they just forget to tell me? Were they purposely not telling me, thinking it was off the background check, is off the credit report? And my answer to them was, look, they didn't forget about their bankruptcy, right? Now they omitted telling you, and the question is, was that purposeful or not? And the question is, is it worth you taking the risk that it was purposeful? And my answer is, no. There's a lot of deals out there, so I think to me, I just move on to the next. So. In the end of the day, it gives you a sense of their character because I've had a lot of situations where somebody says to me, look, in fact, I remember one case, somebody said to me, I was stopped in a traffic stop. They were asked to search my trunk and I had a gun in the trunk in a case and I had a legal permit for the trunk, but I didn't know that I actually had to have a carrying permit for it in my trunk. I was moving it. And, you know, I want you to know that happened because it's going to look really weird when you find that I had like your possession of a gun. And that is Really key because if someone's going to tell you that up front, they're probably not only validating that it might be okay, but also telling you they're willing to disclose that in their certain personality where they're trying not to hide it. So you get a lot of information reading between the lines about someone, and I think it's critical. So um, I know I just went on a long time about this, but I think it's a very important point.
0: No, it certainly is. And, and so, kind of on that same note, what are one or two red flags on a deal, and not necessarily from background check, for, but a red flag? From a
1: sponsor or red flag on a deal that would absolutely just stop you from investing. There's so many. (laughs) True, because well, the first look, the first thing I could tell you is that if it's not a fit for me, right, one of the things you could do as an investor is to make your life much easier is create what I call your box. What are you willing to invest in? What's the lowest occupancy rate that makes sense for you? What's the lowest minimum year one cash flow to make sense for you? And many different things that you can get comfortable with. And so, uh, red flags for me, the first obvious one is. If the split for investors is less than 50%, no matter what scenario, if the sponsor's taking 60, I'm getting 40, we're done. Because to me, that's not market rate, and that's not fair. And now it tells me who I'm dealing with. It's someone who maybe is trying to maximize their side of the table, isn't trying to make it a perfect win-win for everybody. So wrong personality match in the garbage. And I see that a couple times a year, it's an automatic no. If I don't have a preferred return built into a deal, and I'm investing common equity, it's in the garbage because nine, 99 or 95 out of 100 deals that I see have a preferred return. It's an important protection for investors, gives them a preference for return as well. There's no need for me to invest in it that doesn't have a preferred return. Immediately, red flag, in the garbage, right? Those are the two most obvious ones immediately right off the bat. There's many others as well. well
0: that's great. I've heard you say that you you trade control for diversification as a passive investor. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. So look, if I'm an active investor, I can go and refinance a property anytime, hire and fire a manager, sell the property, make a decision about how much I want to spend on a toilet, whatever it is, right? But I trade control for diversification, meaning that I, instead of investing $500,000 to buy that apartment building and have full control over it, I might put $50,000 across 10 apartment buildings, but have no control, but I'm a lot more diversified. And I try to get diversified across asset classes, geographies and operators. So the way that I see it as a passive investor, I trade control for diversification. I also get other things as a result of diversification, I get to leverage other people's time, expertise and credit amongst other things. But I essentially trade control for diversification. And I think that's an important thing to understand, because if I'm not going to make it a point to be really well diversified, and I'm trading control, then all of a sudden, I've got incremental risks, because I'm giving someone else control that I that I can't get rid of. So for example, Fraud, mismanagement, Ponzi scheme risks, right? Those are never 0% of any deal whatsoever. Even if something could become a Ponzi scheme that isn't a Ponzi scheme the day you invest in it, it can happen in the future as you know, down the line. So the way that I can reduce some of those risks of giving up control is within using diversification. And diversification has other many, many other benefits as well. In general, right? I get to diversify out of weather risks or earthquake risks or hurricane risks. I get to diversify across Away from certain economies, of certain states that may become less favorable over time, especially during a pandemic, et cetera. So, there's a lot of benefits to diversification. But, I, my take on it is that as, as a past investor, I trade control for diversification, or okay. I should be trading control for diversification anyway. One more question. Well, two more
0: questions, really. Can you talk about maybe the two or three most important deal specific metrics? You look at when evaluating, let's say, a a multifamily deal, because that's what I know you're not investing in those uh, very much right now, but that's a lot of what our community is doing. So, can you talk about two or three specific deal metrics that you look at when when evaluating a deal?
1: Yeah, I'm just going to get into the easy ones, the very low hanging fruit to start off. So, number one thing I look at, one of the first questions I always ask is, What is the in place cap rate that you're paying? And it could be trailing 12, it could be in place depending on the asset class, but for multifamily, I'd probably look at trailing 12. The reason why I ask that is because I'm looking for a low risk, more predictable type of building that's mostly occupied. And the multiple that I'm paying is one of the most critical things because we're not building a lot of padding into the deal very often, right? It may or may not have value at upside. And so how we buy it is the most one of the most important things to me. I better buy it right, even to create some padding. So the first question I ask is, what is the cap rate? Right, That is one of the most important things to me. Next thing you can look at, one of the really easy things is, what is the assumed average annualized rent inflation and expense inflation, right? Does that look right to you? Does that look fair? Is that a balanced approach they're taking? Another thing you can look at that's really critical is what is the assumed expense ratio? And does not make sense in that scenario? Does it make sense in that climate? Does it make sense with how much common area there is that you're paying electricity on versus are you paying the, the water or tenants paying water and all this? So you have to look at the climate, the cost of living in a certain area and the cost of electricity in a certain area, which is more expensive than others. And also the age of the building and other factors as well, you know, deferred maintenance, et cetera. So the expense ratio is another really important one as a starting point. Now, it's important to dig into every single one of these further. You've got to look at the expense ratio just because it looks right. You want to look at what did they do compared to what the previous owner did and how did it change right up front and why were those changes implemented in the pro forma and are they conservative or are they aggressive, right? Similar to, you know, the average rent increase and expense inflation increase assumption, and the exit cap rate is another one that you can look at immediately and say, is that a fair cap rate? Is it an increase? Is it a decrease? Why? What approach are they taking?
2: And, and you know, in the end
1: of the day, Jim, I think that what I try to do is invest with people who are over, looking to under promise and over deliver and are very conservative for two reasons. One is because it very much aligns with my own personality. And two is because that type of operator, what that tells me is that they're trying to build long term relations with those investors to get them to invest with them for the long term over and over. The ones that I try to stay away from are the ones that are very aggressive, make the numbers look really great, and are overpromising, setting themselves up to underdeliver. But they have a great marketing funnel, and if they only go into one or two deals, they don't care because they're going to keep marketing to other people. That's not the operator I want to be with. And so, some of these metrics I just mentioned, just from the top, start to give you a sense of of what that person's like.
0: The first one you mentioned was the the cap rate, and I know that you typically don't invest in heavy value add deals, so. Because there's more maybe padding in those deals, does that change if you're if you're investing in value-add?
1: Yes and no. If it's a really heavy value-add, you can make the argument that's the case. Because very often, a very heavy value-add, you know, a 20% occupied building is going to have a different cap rate than a 90% occupied building, just in the way the numbers work and where the values are placed. On the other hand, I actually do value-add, but I do um, the value-add at the beginning of the cycle, not the end of the cycle. So it's been a long time since so I've done real value-add, but I'm looking forward to doing it again. But I would make the argument, though, that if you're doing what I would call kind of minor to medium value add, you know, go and renovate the units because I'm renovated in 15 years when they're when they're turning and then, you know, increase the rents. I don't think the cap rates are going to be that much different. You're buying in place cash flow. The person just has put money into the building. You're going to benefit from it from actually increasing the value. As soon as you start paying an adjusted cap rate, you're starting to pay for future value that hasn't been created by anybody else. And in my opinion, that type of future value type of consideration only happens at the end of a cycle. When people are trying to justify bidding more against the next person because it's hard to get because you're bidding against a lot of people, that's not necessarily a good reason, right? It's just an end of cycle reason. But I do agree with you on a heavy value ideal. that cap rate is going to be a bit of, you're going to look at different factors beyond the cap rate. You might look at a price per unit compared to comparables. You're going to have to look at many different factors. What's it going to cost you to get it to where it needs to be and all these other things. So I invest in mostly stabilized stuff and that's what I'm referring to here.
0: Well, this has been great a lot of information and fantastic information we really appreciate it last question for you what is a great podcast that you listen to
1: there's a lot of great podcasts <laughs> I would say um, a couple coming to mind just really quickly I'll just mention a few very quickly I'm sorry Joe Fairless one of the biggest podcasts in the u.s does a fantastic job he has I don't know how many podcasts now I mean I've been on his podcast three times and I think he has probably now, I haven't looked in a while. He's probably got over 2,000 episodes now if I had to guess, right? And just a wealth of information, does a great job interviewing, very smart guy. There's a lot of other large podcasts out there that give you a ton of selection like Cashflow Ninja. I don't hear that one mentioned as much anymore, but it's also just a very, very large podcast. MC Lab Shirt sure does that one. I've been on it a few times as well. And just once you have a large podcast, there's a huge selection of, of information you can choose from. One podcast that I also really like that is you know, a lot of podcasts have very similar people on them over and over. Like, you know, I've been on many different ones and people kind of that, that run these will find me on one and then invite me to be on theirs. And that's how they find me. One that I like that doesn't have as, as much of the, the same people that you'll find out there is uh, a friend of mine, Hunter Thompson, his Cashflow Connections podcast. He tends to get a lot of high profile guests that aren't necessarily a sponsor or an investor. He had Jim Burns recently. I'm sorry, John Burns just on his podcast. I just heard it. Very well known economists in the single family space. Fantastic podcast. He'll get very well known people. He'll get like a Fed economist. He'll get all these people that you won't necessarily see on a lot of these other podcasts that are a little bit more cookie cutter. So I like that one as well. Excellent. That's a great list. Thank you
0: very much. Jeremy, how can listeners get in touch with you?
1: I'm happy to really be in touch with anybody, whether you're new or experienced your investor. If there's any way I can help, if you're an investor that wants to network, or have questions. If you're an operator that you know wants to network, if you're another group that wants to network, I'm just happy to help any way I can. So my email address is the best way to reach me, which is jroll, J-R-O-L-L at roll investments R-O-L-L investments with an S, dot com. So jroll at com.
0: Excellent. Well, this has been fantastic. As I said, we really appreciate you coming on. As I said in the beginning, you've been a great friend to left field investors, and uh, we've had a great conversation. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really hope that our episode was helpful for your listeners. And again, I want to thank you for putting the time and effort into slowly but surely building up your community and helping people to network and learn with each other. It's a really important thing for investors that you're doing. So thank you on behalf of investors. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much for that.
0: What a great conversation with Jeremy. He has so much experience and knowledge and is willing to share it with anyone. He easily admits to being very conservative, very low risk, but he understands that not everyone invests the same way. So even though right now he's sitting on the sidelines for the most part, he still offers great advice for those of us that are looking to deploy capital. He's very tolerant and accepting of other people's viewpoints, which for such an experienced investor seems a little bit rare. And I think that it makes him an amazing resource for investors at any stage of their passive investing journey. I know I appreciate the advice that he gives me. He's currently recommending more diversification than usual for those who need to put their capital to work and advocates looking for some shorter term investments for now, like hard money lending or assets that are quick to depreciate, like ATMs, but also have significant cash flow. Major downside to syndication investing that we talked about is the lack of liquidity because you have no control of when you can sell your stake in the investment. I was really interested to hear Jeremy discuss ATS, Alternate Trading Systems, which I hadn't heard of before. These might make trading of syndicated assets possible, and therefore that increases the liquidity for passive investors. So I'm definitely gonna keep my eye on that topic. And even though Jeremy has been investing passively for almost 20 years, he still constantly works on building his network, and not just with experienced investors and sponsors, but he actively seeks out and helps people new to passive investing. It's clearly helped him continue to grow and find new investors and sponsors, which leads to additional diversification, which he talked about. He also talked a lot about the need to diversify as much as possible as a way to mitigate risk, and that means to invest in multiple asset classes with different sponsors in different markets, which is something we also talk quite a bit about in Left Field Investors. Jeremy talked about creating your own investment box and sticking to it, which admittedly is very difficult for those of us with shiny object syndrome, but it is great advice. With all of the sponsors and deals out there, it also makes sifting through opportunities much easier if you have a box. Jeremy will not invest in deals, for example, that have a split of less than 50-50, or in deals that, without a preferred return. Admittedly, that will cut off some deals to him, but it keeps him within the parameters he sets for his own box, and that's something we can all shoot for. Jeremy's a low-risk guy who didn't like the volatility of the stock market in his retirement account and decided to look for more predictable cash flow through investing in real estate syndications. He's had great success and is always willing to share that and his knowledge with others. He was kind enough to be a featured speaker at our February 2021 Left Field Investors Meeting, and we appreciate him for being on the podcast as well. We look forward to connecting with him again later in the year to gain more valuable insights into past investing.